Welcome to the Biology Society of South Australia podcast, where we bring you conversations in all things biology in our state. I'm your host, Brad Bianco. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Chris Shepard. Dr. Chris Shepard is a conservation biologist from Canada. He worked for the IUCN WWF collaboration organization, Traffic, and has now started his own wildlife monitoring organization, Monitor. Dr. Chris Shepard, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking some time I know you're here short term, it's a busy schedule, you're currently jack lagged, but um, tell us what it is that you do. Um, so I carry out research on uh, illegal and unsustainable wildlife trade globally, looking at, at trade at national levels um, and internationally. Um, I focus largely on species that are poorly known, poorly understood, uh, trying to look at what the impact trade might be having on these species and what can be done to, to mitigate that problem. So you, you worked with the organization Traffic. Um, tell us who Traffic is and what it is that they do specifically. Yeah, in the past I worked for uh, Traffic. It's the Wildlife Trade Monitoring Network of WWF and the IUCN. I worked for them for about 20 years, based in Southeast Asia the entire time. Um, they look at, at international trade, uh, domestic trade, policy, um, pretty much any aspect of the trade. I left traffic two years ago and I set up my own organization which is called Monitor. Um, we continue to look at wildlife trade issues but we're focused a little more on, on as I mentioned, species that other, other people or other organizations are not looking at, um, issues in places that are also sort of not on the radar. So that was your motivation for starting Monitor? There was, you noticed that there was certain aspects of the trade that weren't being captured by traffic? Yeah, there was various reasons for leaving. Um, the, the traffic team I worked with in Southeast Asia is an amazing bunch of people, and I still am um, I'm, I'm, I'm working with them on various projects. But yeah, I, I wanted to focus on, on, on issues that were being missed and, and species that were being left out. Right. So you've been looking into this stuff for 20-odd years now. Mm. How did you get involved looking at the, the wildlife trade? It's something I always wanted to do. Uh, conservation was always um, the direction I was heading in. Uh, I went to I went traveling around Southeast Asia. I ended up in Indonesia. Saw a lot of wildlife trade there. Started volunteering on a few projects. Started um, writing, freelance writing about it. Uh, and not long into that, traffic hired me, and uh, the rest is history. Great. So, what what captivated you about Southeast Asia and their wildlife? I think the what really blew me away to start with was the scale of the trade. Right. And even then, um, it was mind-boggling. But since then, it's only gotten worse. So it's the kind of thing that once you get into it and start realizing what's going on, it's hard to turn your back on. So you were writing about the wildlife trade while you were in Southeast Asia? That's right. That's what I started doing, right. just sort of writing observations and trying to figure out what was going on. There okay. wasn't, there wasn't whole, very many projects happening in the region. Um, and a lot of what we were looking at at that time was you know, nobody knew anything about it. And where did that writing get picked up? Was it published in magazines? Or? Yeah, just magazines and newsletters and that sort of thing. Some of it never did go anywhere, but it, it was more of a learning curve for me uh, just to start getting my head around what was happening and, and figuring out what needed to be done. And really with this type of work, the learning curve is never-ending and pretty steep. Yeah. So I'm going to get this acronym right. The Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species of Fauna and Flora. 
right? Cytus. Close. Damn. <laughs> I tried so hard. Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. Okay. So tell us a little CITES. bit about CITES. Right. CITES is, a, is a, an international convention. There's more than 180 countries party to the convention. Uh, and CITES doesn't regulate trade at a national level, but it does allow for countries to regulate and control trade at an international level. And it, it, um, it allows for international collaboration in, in regulating the trade or preventing trade in species that a country doesn't want to be have exploited at an international level. Um, and it's the only convention of, it, of its kind. Right, so CITES manages or regulates the international trade and at the domestic level it's up to individual countries to regulate wildlife trade within their borders? That's right. Yeah. So CITES is also implemented through national legislation, but only with regards to international trade. So how does a species come up on the CITES list? Is, go into that detail for me. Well, species or species groups are generally... Um, they're, they're proposed by range states to be listed in one of the three appendices. Sorry, a range state is the state that that species occurs in? That's right. Yeah. Right. Sorry. So um, CITES has three appendices. Appendix 1 does not allow for uh, international commercial trade. Generally, there's a few exceptions. Appendix 2 means trade can, um, can take place, provided it's in accordance with national laws and is regulated through a permitting system. And Appendix 3 is similar to Appendix 2, but is, is proposed by the country um, of origin, not necessarily um, by multiple countries through a voting system like Appendix 1 and 2. Okay, so a species comes up, it's to be listed the member states of CITES, the, the participants have to agree that that species is listed? Sure, yeah, so to list something in Appendix 1 or 2, a proposal is put forward to the Conference of the Parties, which takes place every two and a half years, roughly, and that is voted on. Um, the next conference of the parties is this May in Colombo, in, in Sri Lanka, uh, and there's a, there's a number of proposals put forward, to, especially for reptiles uh, this time around, to, to increase or enhance pr protection levels or regulation levels. Um, Appendix 3 is different. A country can decide that they want to put one of their own species on Appendix 3 to allow for international monitoring and, and, and regulation at any time. It's not as strict as Appendix 1 or 2, but um, it also doesn't require the the cop and the vote. Yeah. So one of the things that I read when I was doing some research for this episode was that all eight species of pangolin weren't listed on the CITES, well, I don't, I'm not sure which appendix they're listed under, but that wasn't listed in 2004, until 2014. Um, yeah. Given the rate that that species or those species are trafficked at, why, why did it take so long for the pangolin to be listed? So this is, this is a problem with CITES. And this is a problem with countries that are implementing CITES or are party to CITES. Um, species aren't listed just because they're threatened. Species are listed when range states ask for them to be listed and, and call for international help. No one really knew or understood the scale of the pangolin trade before. Um, most people had never even heard of a pangolin. Right. It was just slowly disappearing, going under the radar completely. Uh, some people thought pangolins were reptiles. There was all these <laughs> misconceptions about what, what was going on. And only um, relatively recently did people start sort of sounding the alarm. You know, pangolins are being traded by the millions. Um, shipments are, by the time, they're disappearing, uh, largely to meet demand in China. Um, so first, the four species in Southeast Asia or across Asia started uh, in serious decline. 
Now we see a shift over to the African species, and again, it took a long time before people really woke up to this problem and, and, and had them listed in Appendix 1. Was that shift because the numbers of pangolins in Southeast Asia were just being so heavily depleted that the market had to look for new sources of that resource? Yeah, that's right. As, as the Asian species um, started declining, uh, we started seeing more and more African ones in, in trade. So what's the status of the, the conservation status of the a African species now? Are they s likely to see a similar fate that the Southeast Asian ones have undergone? That's the direction it's going in. Yeah. Yeah. And people say, well, see, CITES doesn't work. But it's not the... Uh, saying CITES doesn't work is like saying a hammer has failed to build a house. Right. Uh, CITES is a tool. It's not... It's, it's the How responsibility it's is the, the, the CITES authorities of each country, the enforcement agencies in each country. Uh, and that's where we need to see a lot more yeah. proactive efforts to stop the trade in pangolins. So I'm just thinking about this as we go. Um, if, if there's something like the, the Chinese medicine trade um, and all member states have to agree to have a, a species listed, is there ever political pressure to not list a species for a reason like Chinese medicine or... Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The, the, um, when, when a species is proposed for an uplisting in CITES, it, it isn't just a... It's not an easy go. It's not an easy go by any means. <laughs> it's very political. Um, you know, there's a lot of business interests. There's a lot of, uh, there's all kinds of political aspects to this. And then remember that a lot of the countries that trade wildlife um, are also, uh, have serious issues with corruption. Yeah. So that factors in, organized crime factors in in a very big way. So um, getting a species listed is, is already difficult. Getting that listing to become an effective conservation measure is, is a whole other ballgame. Right. One of the other things I noticed doing some research for this is a mismatch between species that occur on the IUCN red list of endangered species or threatened species and those species not necessarily being listed by CITES. Did you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah. So... Um, just because a species is listed as threatened by the IUCN Red List doesn't necessarily mean it's threatened by international trade. And CITES only covers species threatened by trade. It's, a, it's an international trade agreement. It's not looking at um, issues of habitat loss yeah. or pollution or, or any of these other things that may be threatening species at a national level. Right, so there could be other factors that are causing a, a species to decline other than the international wildlife trade. Absolutely. A species yeah. could be critically endangered but not found in international trade. It's right. critically endangered because of invasive species or habitat loss. So if CITES is a, a tool that can be implemented what other tools do we have at our disposal other than CITES? How else can we, as an international community, uh, affect the, the trade in um, threatened species? Um, so, a from, from a, yeah. no, so from a policy or a legislation point of view, really, um, in many countries, the national legislation has to be strengthened. Um, many countries have national legislation that's absolutely riddled with loopholes that traders take advantage of on a regular basis. I mean, some countries, um, for example, in Thailand or Indonesia, their national laws don't effectively protect non-native species. So once you've smuggled right. something in, you can sell it and without risk of... Right. I remember reading about ivory in Thailand, that Thailand is the biggest importer of ivory and it's sort of a distribution hub. So once it's in Thailand, there's no local law that prevents the trade in ivory. Right. So that it's interesting you bring up that point because Thailand has this loophole. Non-native species aren't protected in Thailand. And there was a very big push from a number of organizations uh, in collaboration with the Thai government to have this loophole filled for the ivory problem. 
and over time it was. So African ivory is now illegal in Thailand. Oh, right. So that loophole has been filled if, for, for African elephants, so but it hasn't been filled for Madagascar tortoises or you know the, a, a long list of non-native species that keep getting smuggled into Thailand and openly sold there. Right. Uh, so really the same process has to happen again in Thailand, but this time including all non-native site-assisted species rather than just try to do it one species out. Okay, we've done the elephant, now now what? You know, it right. needs to be done at a, a much broader scale. Yeah, yeah. So the organization is called Monitor. How do you collect um, data on the trade and wildlife? Yeah, we get data from a number of sources. We collect seizure information. We analyze seizure, seizure data. Uh, that tells us a lot about trade routes, about enforcement effort in particular places, about trends in species composition. Uh, for example, one year you might be seeing a, a lot of seizures made in, in a particular species of songbird and, and through through a year of seizure data you see the, the species composition changing completely that tells us something about perhaps about demand, perhaps about fashion, perhaps about the status of the species in the wild that could be disappearing and are being replaced by, by something else. So we can learn a lot from seizure data. Um, we do market surveys, doing inventory of markets. So actually going out to trade markets and yeah. seeing what pe people are... Right, so we go to markets all over the place. We, we do inventories of the markets. We collect price data. We, we look at uh, the species composition in the markets. Is this, is this local? Is there um, an increase in species from another particular country? Uh, is the trade moving from one species group to another? And if so, why, why is that happening? Yeah. Um, we do a lot of um, online market surveys as well. A lot of the wildlife trade is switched from the open physical markets to, to online. Yeah. Which is uh, not hard to monitor in many ways, but is, it creates a, its own set of challenges for enforcement agencies. Mm -hmm. um, some countries don't have laws preventing online trade or preventing advertisement of wildlife online. So that comes with a whole mess of new right. problems. If you can sell drugs and guns on the internet, why not endangered species? You, you, can, you can get pretty much anything online, right? So it's, it's a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. Mm. So this is something you're obviously really passionate about. What is it like to actually be in a, a market that's trading endangered species? What is it like to be there? How does it feel? Um, I guess it's a mixture of frustration that these things exist, that these places exist. Um, seeing uh, the mortality rate of, of animals in these markets is, is enormous. If you were to look at animal markets from a wildlife, or sorry, an animal welfare point of view, mm -hmm. it would do your head in. Like the, the, uh, the orangutan that's just recently been picked up in the Bali airport. Right, or a guy from Russia example. trying to drugged it and stuck it in the suitcase. That's right, true. so you see things like that, but you see a lot of, of animals suffering and dying. So from that point of view, it's, it's horrific. Um, Looking at it from a legislation point of view, from a legal point of view, you're often in markets where there's absolutely nothing legal there. Everything is, is illegal. Uh, so in, in these cases, it's, it's uh, frustrating to say the least. Why, mm -hmm. why, why is this still happening? Uh, it's also, um, like I said earlier, the, the learning curve is very steep. It's very challenging and um, there is that aspect where you know, it's, it's a, a very interesting line of work yeah, uh, and you do hope that at the end of the day these surveys and these papers and everything else you're working on uh, has, a, has a positive impact and yeah. we'll eventually we'll see these markets disappear. Yeah. You mentioned uh, seizure records. I imagine the quality of data being collected on the national level of customs officials who are picking up these things matters a great deal. Is that right? 
Absolutely, and it really varies country to country. You know, some countries record their seizures, uh, you know, very accurately. The numbers, the the species involved, everything. Others, uh, it's incredibly vague. The seizure might be recorded as birds, and that's it. What kind of birds? We don't know, but yeah. birds. So it, it varies a lot, and we, we are working um, hard to improve that across the board. We, we, we've met with governments over the years, um, pushing for these records to be um, better recorded and made available as well. Yeah. Um, in some cases, there's a reluctance to report seizures. You know, you maybe if no one knows we're doing that these are happening, it'll look like we're not doing anything, you know, that there's no problem here. But um, when you look at seizures, it's important to look at seizures uh, made coming into a country and having already left that country, and then compare that with seizures made within the country. And you can really tell a lot about um, enforcement effort in the country. If, there's, if most seizures are made having already left that country, clearly there's a problem. Yeah. I don't know much about the, the specifics of the, the Bali orangutan incident, but I, it came to my mind... Who is it that is trafficking wildlife? Is this like an organized crime thing? Is this lone lone wolves out for their own personal gain? Do you know much about how the the, the trade aspect of the market is structured? Yeah, it's pretty complex. There's, there's, there's everything from opportunistic buyers just seeing something that they would like to have and buying it for themselves to hobbyists that are, are you know interested in collecting reptiles, for example. To sort of more extreme hobbyists that want very rare reptiles um, so that the consumers themselves are a pretty diverse group mm-hmm. why are they buying animals it could be any number of reasons the networks that move animals from the range state to to your home yeah. um, are increasingly organized crime groups especially when we're talking about highly threatened species protected species and and, um, and rare species and, and in many cases as a species becomes increasingly rare the price goes up so does the desire to have it. Right. So more does the more lucrative. Yeah, and, and then more involvement of organized crime. If it's a species that's worth very little, there's no point in protecting that particular aspect of the crime. But once it becomes more valuable, then it becomes a, a much more organized network moving them around. Right. Has that always been the case in the trade in your experience? Or has it moved to a more centralized trade network? Um, I guess it's always been there, but it, it's a lot more obvious now. Um, there's, you know, as infrastructure improves, as, as um, sort of disposable income is more available in countries, um, and as the value of these animals is, is increasing, I guess there's more organized crime involved than there has been in the past. It really wasn't looked at in the past as much as it should have been, so yeah. it's hard to, hard to tell in some ways. But it's not just one network running it. It's, it's you know, organized crime is is a pretty varied, pretty loose term in itself. It mm-hmm. could be a few people smuggling things out of a park into a, into a network of restaurants at a national level. Or it could be people moving things out of, you know, certain islands off of Indonesia through four different middlemen there before it's smuggled out on certain airlines with people being greased all the way along right. into another network in the EU and then moved around there. And that level of corruption that you mentioned earlier will probably play a big role in that. Oh, absolutely. Corruption's one of the biggest obstacles in, in dealing with wildlife trade. I think it's a big obstacle in dealing with all kinds of illegal activity. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Um, so I'm really curious as to what makes a species attractive to the, the wildlife trade. Is it, I mean, we talked about Chinese medicine, but w- what else is there that's going on here? So there's a number of things at play here. There's tradition, 
Oh, people want, um, in, for example, I'm picking on Indonesia again, um, people want to have a songbird, it's traditional to have a songbird. Um, and that has escalated to the point that dozens of songbird species are on the brink of extinction in Indonesia. So really the way to tackle that is obviously through better policy and better enforcement, but also working with um, the public, changing, the, changing that mindset, changing yeah. that, um, that behavior. In other cases, rarity drives the trade uh, as species become increasingly rare. That's ironic. It is. It, it actually, it's disgusting, really. It's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, as you hear people say, well, I want to get one of those soon because they're almost gone. Yeah, wow. And that, that mentality is, is beyond my comprehension, but it's there. And, and that, 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 that's pushing a lot of species towards extinction as well. The rarer it gets, the higher the price, the more demand. Right. Um, in other cases, uh, when a new species is described, people want to have that. Oh, it's wow. new. Want to get want to get a hold of that. Um, and some species are traded just because they're you know songbirds for their song, um, a number of birds or reptiles because of their their appearance. Yeah. Whether it's bright plumage or a sound or a, a behavior, people yep. want to have that. So they are kind of keeping them as pets. Right. So the pet trade is really weird. Um, there's these pet cafes popping up all over Asia where you can go and sit down and have a drink and there's cages full of weird animals all around you and you can wow. buy some. This is a new thing. I don't get it. Um, but just recently I was in Bangkok and, and one of them there had armadillos, cassowaries, um, bat-eared foxes, bush babies from Africa. Just rolling, roaming around a cafe? Just, just in little cages around the cafe. And you can buy anything. Oh. None of it should have been there. Um, there's otter cafes popping up in Japan. Otters are smuggled out of Indonesia and Thailand into Japan and, and sold as pets there. You know, w- w- why people decide suddenly that everybody should have an otter is, is um, beyond me, but there's thousands of otters suddenly in trade and it's a problem. Yeah, right. You mentioned restaurants, and I think you were talking about restaurants in the form of distribution networks, but is meat part of the wildlife trade? Are animals being traded for their, their flesh? Oh, yeah. The wild meat trade is huge. Um, it's, it's, it's enormous. And, and traditionally, people have eaten meat, right? Right. So, and subsistence in many places is still an issue. People need to hunt. Like bush meat. to eat bush meat. Yeah. Um, but in many cases, um, wild meat trade is, is a luxury. It's the, the wild animals traded for meat are more expensive than beef or pork or chicken. Mm. So it's not a subsistence issue. It's not a, a poverty issue. It's a luxury thing. People want to impress their, their peers, their... And, and you're eating meat that pe- people didn't used to eat, owl meat or clouded leopard meat or... or clouded leopard meat? Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, so, so it sounds like status it is. plays a huge role in this. It does. In, in the meat trade, in the luxury trade, in, in the pet trade, status is running, uh, is behind a lot of the trade. You know, you want to impress people, you have, you have... In Vietnam, people are using rhino horn to treat hangovers. This is not traditional. Right. This is purely status. I, I'm so filthy rich that I, that I can use rhino horn to treat my hangover. It's like the Westerners' version of, I'm so rich and I can afford to waste my money on a Maserati. In some countries, it's, I can afford to cure my, hang- cure my hangover with, a, with rhino horn. Exactly. I've got a, a, a songbird that no one else has because it's the last one kind of, kind yeah. of mentality. Or I'm, I'm going to impress my, my, my boss, I'm going to take him out to a restaurant, we're going to order tiger meat, or we're going to order bear paw. Um, and these dishes are widely available, uh, completely illegal, um, but are among the drivers pushing species towards extinction. Wow. So 
we're wrapping up a bit. I'd love to bring this conversation back to a bit of a local perspective. Are there South Australian plants or animals that are on the radar for wildlife traffickers? Yeah, Australia's got such an amazing array of wildlife. Of course, it's in demand. Um, we are seeing an increase in reptiles coming out of Australia uh, for sale. We're seeing an increase in seizures being made in other countries that involve Australian reptiles um, and availability online. So there's definitely a demand. The demand seems to be on the rise. Uh, so you know, clearly there's some more work that needs to be done in this area. Right. And we have such a high level of endemism in our country that I imagine that the rarity and status that we've been discussing that would play really heavily in the trafficking of Australian species. Uh, absolutely. I mean, Australia's regulation is, is among the best. Enforcement is among the best. So if you do get reptiles out, they're, they're worth a premium. Yeah, right. Mm. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about plants, since that's my, my area of study. And I know I've got plenty of friends who are going to say, Brad, you should have asked about plants. Uh, we've talked about animals this whole time. Where do plants fit into this? Well, so, yeah. I, I don't work on plants. Um, there are many people that do work on the plant trade, and it, it's, it's, it's pretty much in parallel with, uh, with the trade in animals. It's, it's enormous and it's threatening a lot of species. And there's probably far less research being carried out on the plant trade than there is on the, on the animal trade. But I, I, that's just not an area. The animal trade is, yeah. is far too big as it is for me right. to st- stepping into the plant trade or the aquarium fish trade or any of these other aspects. Wow. Mm. So thank you so much for having a chat with me. If people want to find out more about your research or follow you on social media, where can they get a hold of you? Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter. I've also got a, um, a research account so people can see that we put all of our publications on there. Um, so everything's available. Dr. Chris Shepard, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.